everyone. This is Nanette from NanetteFayGordon.com, and you're listening to the Fire After 50 podcast. This is the spot where I sit down with passionate women over the age of 50, and we explore what lights them on fire. Women who listen to their own intuition to design a life they love, many in unconventional ways. So sit back and prepare to be inspired. Welcome to the next episode of the Fire After 50 podcast. Um, I'm really glad that you're here and I'm really excited to introduce my next guest. And she actually epitomizes the title of this podcast in my mind. Um, I don't know exactly how old she is, but I might ask her that question. Um, But I know she's over 50 and she is on fire. She's got so many things going on and I'm really excited to discuss them all. Uh, Kim Bernard creates sculpture that is recycled, kinetic, interactive, public, and involves the community. She creates installations upcycled out of trash and is currently focusing on transforming plastic waste into sculpture using her portable recycling machines. Catch that, her portable recycling machines. She shows her work nationally and has been invited to participate in many exhibits, some of which include the Portland Museum of Art, Courier Museum of Art, Fuller Craft Museum, Harvard University, Art Complex Museum, and UNH Museum of Art. Her work has been reviewed in the Boston Globe, Art News, uh, Art New England, Um, Kim is the recipient of the Artist Advancement Grant, Kindling Fund Grant, NEFA Grant, six main arts commissions grants, as well as funding from the Ellis Beauregard Foundation. She was an artist in residence in the physics department at Harvard University and at the University of New England. She received her BFA from Parsons in 1987 and her MFA from MassArt in 2010. Kim teaches at the Maine College of Art, Colby College, Haystack, and as a visiting artist. Welcome, Kim, to the Fire After 50 podcast. Thank you. It's great to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Absolutely. And, you know, it's funny. I wanted to um, talk about the things that are in um, in your bio, but, you know, I met you, well, we actually tried to figure out how we met. And as I was doing a little bit more research about you um, on your website and around um, social media, I actually did remember how I met you, Um, Matt being online. Um, I was actually um, researching tiny houses. Okay. And, and there I, it is. Yeah. Yeah. And I yeah. came across one of your projects. Right. That was the amphibious tiny house. That's it. And yeah. my mind was blown. And that's when I started um, keeping an eye on what you were doing. Yeah. 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 And, so that was actually while I was an artist in residence at the University of New England, which um, started out as being a one semester visiting artists in residence agreement that I would be there uh, connecting art and science. And it ended up being a year and a half. And the amphibious tiny house started out as a um, 
a like kind of a think tank where students who just on their own volition would join us on Wednesday night. It was not a formal thing, but we would get together on Wednesday night and we would talk about tiny houses and started designing the ideal tiny house and what kind of power would it have and what kind of amenities would it have and how would we make the space um, functional and aesthetically pleasing and comfortable. And we ended up deciding that it should be able to go anywhere so it had to be have wheels and it also had to float so it ended up being the amphibious tiny house and this was all pie in the sky thinking until we very fortunate to um, have the Ellis Beauregard Foundation get excited about the idea of this project and funded the project and funded me being there for another year so we actually built this 24 foot long pontoon boat slash house floating house the house was eight feet wide and 16 feet long and it was a kind of a live aboard floating house on a trailer so it could be moved anywhere or launched anywhere and it was a year of my life (laughs) and when I say my life I mean waking up in the middle of the night thinking how am I going to get this thing to float? Is it going to displace too much water? I mean, am I going to go up for budget? Where is it going to live? Uh, fiberglass, you know, all the like building. It was from scratch. We didn't, oh. we didn't rebuild anything. We built it from scratch. Yeah. So I was it was a pretty exciting project. It yeah. must've been. And it so speaks my language because I love tiny houses and I am like, crazy about the water and the ocean and lakes and any body of water. So when I found that on your site, I remember just thinking like, oh my gosh, I have to get to know this woman a little bit better and keep an eye on yep. what she's doing. And one of the things that yeah. struck me when I was looking at um, your website, the little information about that particular project was how many different um groups you had to get involved, you know, as right. far as one of them was like um having to find out what all the um, like vehicle requirements for like oh yeah and right so there was so many I mean we had a trailer so we had to make sure that it was low enough to go under bridge most bridges you know power mm-hmm. lines and when it was in the water we uh, we had to make sure that it met with Coast Guard regulations it was navigable it had propulsion it had visibility it had you know all of the uh, requirements that it would need as a navigable boat. Mm. And that, and we met with um, the people from submerged lands. We had to figure out where, where could we moor the boat? Uh, we ended up deciding to donate it to the college of the Atlantic. Mm. And it was, per, it was a perfect, my year was coming to an end and UNH or not UNH, UNE didn't want to be responsible for this, amphibious tiny house. So I I went looking for um, an educational institution that would be interested in having it. And the first place that I contacted was the College of the Atlantic, and they were very interested. So we donated it. That's yeah. awesome. I was going to ask yeah. you where it landed, because I yep. even like the painting that you did on the outside and yeah. people really should go. We'll talk about the end, you know, where people can find you, but they really need to go look it up and take a look at it. And not just that, but all of your projects that you've got listed on your website. And there's so many to me that are really fascinating in so many different ways. 
Um, one of the first questions I love to ask, or one of the questions I love to ask each woman um, on the podcast is, what are you most passionate about right now? Public art, the environment, the climate crisis, plastic. And when I say public art, what I'm talking about is art that's accessible in our lives as we live, play, work. And I'm at a point, I'm 58, by the way, you asked that question when in the intro, I'm at a point in my life where I really am trying to focus hard on the things that mean the most to me and where my energy and my passion is. And public art has always been of great interest. And now it's of real focus. Like I'm really trying to funnel my creative work, my own creative work. I, you know, I do a lot of community projects and teaching about my own creative work into um, public channels Mm. because I recognize that Oh, there's so many reasons why public art appeals to me, but it's democratic for one thing. And it's it's accessible in that someone doesn't have to go into a gallery or a museum to experience it. It You don't have to own it. You don't have to pay for it. And it touches the, those lives of people that live around it and visit it. And uh, I, I don't I know that all art can't be that, but. I think it's important that we as a society and a culture have art in our world and mm-hmm. in our daily lives and mm-hmm. that those who might not go into a museum or a gallery have access and that it's free. Um, and it it has a potential to strike up conversation between people about the topic addressed in the work. Um, and I think it has an opportunity to uplift those who, um, you know, experience it. Mm. So, so it's feels- definitely the public art right now. Mm. And and the environment, I mean, we're all concerned about the environment. I've always um, had environmental um, issues of concern to me that have been right in the forefront of my thinking, but addressing it in my work is really uh, a focus right now. And that fits so well with public work and bringing in issues about climate and focusing on a a variety of issues through the work that I do with plastic. Mm -hmm. So plastic is a material that is so pervasive in our, you know, in our world. And it's such a problem um, that using plastic as a way of expressing ideas with is a really good fit for the environmental issues that I want to address. And it also is a good fit for not wanting to use raw virgin materials in my work, but instead use a material that really needs to be kept out of the landfill and kept out of the ocean and turned into something that can have another life. Mm. And that's, and that's the love how, work. how multidimensional that is. I mean, there's mm-hmm. just so many, so many different layers. Um, right. Like the project that I think you maybe just finished or are still in the midst of where you're doing the words, uh, making them out of plastic with, yeah. again, your machine, which I want to talk a little bit about that too, because you're also an inventor. Which well, I didn't invent the trees. 
I, no. I'm sorry. I didn't invent the machines or the tree. <laughs> I didn't invent the. I didn't invent the machines, so I can't take credit for that. Um, there's an open source website called Precious Plastic, and there are people all over the globe that have used the instructions from the Precious Plastic open source website to build these machines. So there are communities all over the globe that are using the um, open source information to either build or have built these machines. So I did not build them. And the, the project that you're referencing is Tree Talk, where I use the extruded plastic. So if you can imagine long strands of, of plastic to coil loosely around the trees, and there are 13 of them, they're in Lowell, Mass, at a um, little park area next to a community center. And there are words that the uh, community determined reflected them. So I wrote in cursive with the plastic, these words that reflect the community and then wrapped the coils of plastic around the trees. And actually I recently calculated that I used the equivalent of 612 gallon milk jugs of plastic. Wow, that is so <laughs> great. And, yeah. and I, I, either I heard you speak about this or I read this, I can't remember which one, that you got um, your ideas, I'm not sure if this is, I get it exactly right, but that you got your idea to work with the plastic jugs uh, from sailing with your husband? Well, we sail and we see de marine debris. Um, it kind of crept in gradually. I can't point to any one thing other than when I was at UNE uh, as the artist in residence, I did a project with a marine pollution class where the students collected on International Coastal Cleanup Day. Uh, they cleaned up local beaches and I uh, worked with them to have them bring the plastic. Well, it's not just plastic, it was all kinds of trash to me. And my work study students um, and I collected data on the uh, debris. So we knew exactly what was collected and we cleaned it all up. And I did an installation that's still at UNE in the Marine Science Center. So that was an early trash installation. And recycled materials have been creeping their way into my work for well over a decade now. So, you know, when I'm thinking about what kind of components I might use for a specific purpose in a, say, a kinetic sculpture. Um, like one of them had bowling balls that I got from a bowling ball, you know, alley <laughs> center and drilled holes in it because I needed weights and they were spherical, which is what I wanted. And another project involved wrapped uh, balls of bicycle inner tubes that I shred into spaghetti strands. And I wrap that up like little balls of yarn and those became a kinetic sculpture. So in other words, it just has been working its way in um, the recycled materials. And then, you know, my personal life, I'm always trying to not buy anything new, not throw anything away, repurpose things whenever possible. You know, what can I use instead of buying such and such? And I started looking at my studio practice saying, oh, yeah, I need to do that there too, 100%. Mm. So the rule became nothing new, throw nothing away, buy nothing new, and use now all recycled materials. So I'm probably at 95 to 99%. Sometimes I need nails and screws and wire to hold it all together, but the materials are all recycled. Mm, that's great. Yeah. 
Let, let's go back just a little bit. Um, I'm just really curious, um, a little bit of a backstory about how you got here. Like, did you grow up with artists? Like, you know, how did how did you grow up and, and how did you get here? Because, you know, I think there's so many women um, in our society who don't really dare to sort of live outside of the, you know, guidelines that they perceive society has for us. And, you know, live a life that is really genuinely theirs and making it the way that designing it for themselves. And I'm really curious, like, you know, where you came from, like, how did you yeah. get there? Yeah. So bullet points. I grew up in Southern New Hampshire. Um, I was the only, only child of very young parents. My parents were 20 and 21 when I was delivered and my, so they always said, we grew up together. The three of us grew up together. I always saw my parents um, um, taking interest in both stereotypically male and female hobbies. Let's call it hobbies oh. or interest. So my, my dad um, could use a sewing machine and learn how to knit from my mother. And my mother would... You know, she's really physical and uh, would mow the lawn and dig dirt and garden and uh, work, you know, just work around the house. So my dad would cook, you know, all all this cross pollination. Mm. So I never, of course, I knew about stereotypical roles, but I didn't see that in my home growing up. And my parents didn't foster it in me either like when I uh, my dad would bring me into the wood shop and say okay uh, let's learn how to use a bandsaw or um, you want to learn how to weld so I would get introduced to things that were stereotypically male um, all along and to their credit they always encouraged my creative work creative creative wonderful? yeah my crafts or mm. you know whatever little crafty project I was doing, they'd buy me supplies, they'd get me into art classes. So they encouraged, they'd let me set up a place to make my creative things, right? So I always felt like that was 100% supported. And they supported my going to art school, which I didn't recognize until I got into art school that my classmates were not all there with the support of their parents and oh some parents didn't support their and then of course learned as I went along that a lot of people decided not to pursue art because they didn't have the support yeah yeah from home yeah. from their um, parents from their upbringing and then I went to New York City from southern New Hampshire like Rochester New Hampshire is very rural mill town and um, I, went, I went to New York City for college and that was a big eye-opener culturally and being in an urban center I did a semester exchange in Paris I backpacked and hitchhiked alone all over southern France and Italy for the summer I mean I just really explored I love 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 to travel so um, and then I traveled when I got out of art school England Scotland and Ireland and and I try to travel whenever I can. So, I mean, just being, getting to the point of not being afraid to go someplace alone, you know, be, be on my own, 
rely on my own resources and pursue the things that I felt were right for me. Mm. Um, that was more challenging when I was a young parent, mm -hmm. um, just because, you know, my focus had then shifted. And of course I wanted it to, to raising children. Um, but, um, that was pleasure too. <laughs> I have yes. two wonderful sons now that are really interesting young men mm -hmm. and doing really interesting things out in the world. So, uh, and then my, um, my now husband, Christos and I have been married since twin, la, 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 la. we've been together since 2000. So, and we've been married since 2008 and he's a very creative person and a sailor and a mm. sailing captain and uh, paints. His studio is above mine in our wow. studio building. And so, um, I, I mean, I've, I've been very fortunate to have people in my uh, close circle, my family, my life that were, have always been supportive of my creative work. I can't say that it's always been easy just because of that. I've had to pay my way all along. I've had to make a living. I'm not a trust fund baby. I've had to and wanted to be independent and make, uh, you know, contribute to the household income, my half. So, um, you know, making a living and being an artist is not always easy. Um, but that's, you know, that's, that's been, uh, that's where I came from to answer yeah. the question. Yeah. I love that. I love that. And, um, yeah, I think you're right. There's, there's a lot of people who would love to have gone to art school or did go to art school, but still didn't feel supported. And so I was really curious about where, you know, your background came because you seem to be extremely confident and comfortable in, in what you're doing and you're doing amazing things. And the amazing, one of the amazing things too, I think about what you're doing is, is how much you're heavily helping other people. And that's where I got to know you a little bit better um, from just, you know, seeing what you're doing with your amphibious tiny house is when you um, offered the grant writing class. And, and I struggle too with, you know, how to be an artist and how to pay my own way. And I feel like I'm a very independent woman and want mm -hmm. to pay my own way. But oftentimes I have bumped up against, um, you know, how to, how to satisfy my artistic interests and how to make enough money to be able to pay my share. And so the grant writing class that you so wonderfully teach um, is, I think, a wonderful um, intersection between being an artist, being a business person, um, and being able to pay your own your own you know piece of the puzzle. Right, right. Well, I teach what I know, and I have written many, many grants, and. I do a lot of creative and professional development workshops as well, like art biz workshops. And I have um, uh, an accelerator class that I, where I work with a number of participants to bring them along in their goals as a creative person. And we, you know, work in creative practice and also professional development skills and then the grant writing. And I also teach studio art classes as, as well. But I teach what I know and what I'm excited about. Mm. So when, 
when, um, you know, that's also something that I've consistently done all along. Even in high school, I proposed to teach a class at an elementary school um, as for one way of earning credit for my art class, I think mm, it was. Wow, that's, that's so, I mean, when I was a senior in <laughs> high school and I was teaching fourth graders art once a week. So mm. when I was in um, when I was in my art school days, I taught aerobics <laughs> <laughs> and I ta I've taught martial arts. I've, ta I've taught lots of different things all along the way. And it's, it's, it's all, I, I mean, it's all helped me support myself so that I can then make art and it's all been, um, a pleasure. Like I, I would much rather teach what I'm excited about and what I know than have a part-time jobby job yes. that I can do but I'm not excited about absolutely it doesn't feed me and my teaching also it feeds me in other words when I'm teaching an art biz class or a grant writing class I've got to walk the walk not just talk the talk I've <laughs> got to be working on my own stuff I'm I'm writing a proposal right now. I've got, you know, a whole list of deadlines coming up. And it's almost as if when I'm teaching it, I'm it's keeping me on my toes right. also. I can't yeah. just tell other people to do it. I have to do it too. And it's brought so many really interesting people like you into my life through the teaching. So that's brought all these creative uh, people really interesting people doing fascinating things into my world. And it's mm. built this like rich network of people that um, I yeah. try to stay in touch with actually. Yeah. But, no, I think that's great. Yeah. I, I love that. And, and I've always felt like whenever I was teaching something, I was also learning as much or more um, yeah. in whatever I'm teaching or about the human, you know, race as a group or, you know, something I'm, I'm always learning something even probably more than the people who are learning from me. And Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So it is, it's a wonderful experience, especially when you can teach something that you love. Right. Right. It, it does force you to break it down into like, what are the, what's the information that needs to be conveyed? What order should this be delivered in? And making sure that you've got all the, I've definitely um, learned because I've had to teach something, um, you know, it helps me to really like fill in the gaps, fill in the blanks. If I have to, you know, anticipate another person's question that I didn't have to answer for myself, but I'll need to know it for someone else. That's yeah. enriching. It is. It is. Yeah. No, I completely agree. And it has for me, I'm not a very organized person. So whenever I've gotten ready to teach something, it has really made me put, you know, pencil to paper and come up with my system. You know, what is yes. my system? How do I do it? What's the process? And because otherwise I tend to, I don't know, have this pride around shooting from the hip, which <laughs> sometimes serves me a lot of times doesn't serve me. And mm -hmm. but teaching and getting ready to teach has really helped me to get things in order. And and then usually I feel a real sense of pride too. Like, wow, I, I figured all these pieces out somehow from start yeah. to end. And yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um let's you get it together. It does. Yeah. Um, let's talk for a minute about your creative process. Like, you know, um, where do you come up with your ideas? Mm, yeah. Um, because, you know. 
I, one of the things that I really believe in for myself is listening to my intuition and listening deeply to myself and what I believe and, you know, what I need, what I want, or the two o'clock in the morning um, moments where I'm like, oh my gosh, I think I should do blah, 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 whatever, write a book, whatever it is. And, Mm -hmm. And I don't know if you read the book, Big Magic. But it's one of those. Know the book. Yeah. yeah. Like where she says, you know, inspiration hits you and um, you can choose to either grab a hold of it and run with it or it goes to someone else. And I love that concept because it really makes me stop saying, who am I to do that? And to say, who am I not to do that? Um, yeah. But I'm wondering, like, where do your creative ideas come from? Yeah. Um, like the specifics. Okay. I... I like to have parameters around what I'm doing. Uh, And it does help me if I have a deadline, if I have a location, if I have maybe a budget, if I have a space where the work is going to go. If I'm just about, uh, you know, if I'm going to just create uh, with all of the choices being open-handed, it is totally overwhelming to me. And I talk about fire. I get a fire under me when I have a deadline. Mm -hmm. If I know that I have a show and it's opening in two months and I have this much space and four walls, whatever it is, um, I really start cranking. So that becomes my jumping off point. And because right now I'm focusing on public art installations, that's my starting point. So let's just take this um, treetop project that I just installed in Lowell, Mass. So I saw that they were doing a call for public art. It's public, not permanent, it's public temporary as in a year or two, the installation will be there. And um, they were there were certain things, you know, there's a budget and there's there are certain sites that the work could be so you can express interest in a certain site. And this is what um, the community is, how how they the community identifies itself. And this is what the um, public art institution is looking for. So there are my parameters. And I just start like brainstorming from there and also doing some matchmaking, matchmaking between ideas that I have previously had for other projects or new ideas. And then also that public art works um, parameters. So it's, you know, it's a lot of brainstorming and thinking. And then there's the, if I'm going to use a particular material. So if it's an outdoor sculpture, it has to, I have limitations there. I can't work in paper. I have to work with a material that's going to weather well through 12 months out of the year. So these are all helpful. I mean, I don't like too many constraints, but I like it when there's a few that I have to consider to work within. Mm -hmm. Um, Another example, I just in the beginning of the year, I think it was around February or March installed uh, per, percent for art project at the Washington County Community College. And it was in, there's a um, learning center, right? It's kind of connected to the library and a wall over a bank of computers. And they were looking for 
uh, an art piece that would be up above the bank of computers. Um, so I started brainstorming, you know, what could this be? What What's their community all about? Of course, I wanted to use recycled plastic. And I ended up doing something similar in that I worked with words that reflected their community and um, wove in some wave lines because it's right on the river and um, worked, you know, just worked in some um, Wabanaki language, Spanish language, because that reflects their community. So I thought it was important to have a language that every, you know, they, the community speaks. Mm. So, and of course there was the limitation of budget. And then when you start working with a committee and the committee might be the selection committee, there's other, you know, people weighing in, well, you know, we want this, we don't want that. We like this th thing that you're proposing. And, and this is all actually really helpful. I mean, it can be too much sometimes, but there's a good balance of that that helps to, to drive the work. And then for, you know, for creative ideas and inspiration, sometimes it's um, material that I get really excited about. Or it can be, wow, this extruder that's, you know, pumping out recycled plastic that I can add color to and I can change the color and I can do an ombre of color from this to that. And what would happen if I had armature wire and I wrapped it around that? Or if, what if I have a ring and I wrap it around that and stick nails in it and do loops and hang it? So that sometimes it's the material, like what are the possibilities with this material that I have not explored? Can it do this? And then I try it. I was trying to knit with it knit with the, wow, with the plastic was a little complicated it's possible <laughs> I figured out how a way to knit with it I can't crochet with it but I can can knit with it um so sometimes it's a matter of I wonder if and then I go to the machine and I try it and sometimes it's a flat out no way and sometimes it's a oh yes if I I can figure this out I That's I need to work it a little bit but I can figure it out and then uh, you know, I've, I'm always looking, I'm always like collecting imagery that is in stimulating in some way. And that could be on Pinterest. I've got folders and, That's you know, I've got, yeah, yeah, do you, yeah do definitely. You journal? Do you, when you're, when you're doing your creative brainstorming, is it with, um, you know, pen to paper? Is it on Pinterest? Is it with a friend? With Is it with your partner? Like when you're doing yeah. all that creative brainstorming, how does that look? Well, it looks like it, sometimes it often it looks like I wonder if mm, and I then I, you know, I, I like hmm, wonder if this would work or and then I go try it with the materials. Sometimes it works. Sometimes it doesn't. Right. I but try it. Try it. Yeah. And then sometimes I'm just like hanging on to this idea for too long almost Ideas have a shelf life too. If mm -hmm. you don't, they have an expiration date. If you don't act on them, they don't become, they don't stay interesting forever. No, we so, don't. Fire you know, goes away. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it's, I think it's a good idea to use it so you don't lose that interest in it. Um, but one example of that was the recycling machines. You know, I have four machines in my studio. I have a shredder, which 
shreds plastic into flakes. And I'm using number two plastic, it's HDPE. And then I have an extruder, which you put the plastic shred in the hopper with some pigment, it heats up and extrudes from one end in a long strand of very hot 400 degree colorful flexible plastic and I wear glove, heat gloves and I manipulate the plastic then and I have um, an injection machine which pumps plastic into molds and, and an oven a uh, compression oven which makes flat sheets it's really the extruder and the shredder that I use almost exclusively mm. so you know, I looked at these machines on the web and I kept like at least for a year, I would look at these machines and I'd watch videos on how they're used. I'd look to see what you could make with them. And finally, I just said, just do it. Like yeah. I have to just do, if not now, when? Right. Pull the trigger. Right. See how do it goes. Do it. Just, yeah. you keep obsessing on these machines. Like, come on, just yeah. You know, I the <laughs> get the so I did. <laughs> I mean, maybe that would have been, I don't know, maybe it would have been one that like really harped on me for another year or two, and then I'd finally did it. Or maybe I I don't know. I could have lost interest, I suppose, and gotten off Moved on done. something else. Who knows? But I just had to get it out of my system. Mm. And I'm still it's still in my system. That's so great. still firing you up. <laughs> Do you ever get yeah. into a creative slump? Oh yeah, of course. Um, there's there. It's more of ebbs and flows. I've really only had one serious, serious slump, and that was around menopause. Mm. And I just went into this very low place, and I called all kinds of artists, friends who are had you know who I figured had been through menopause and talked to them about their experience I was really interested in women creativity and menopause and how what do those three things look like in combination I couldn't for the life of me pin that down hmm. it was all over the map everyone had something different to share I couldn't there was no like nothing that I could take from the conversations other than it was great to talk to women about their experience and try to relate it to my own. Um, but I really couldn't, I couldn't deduce anything from it that could tell me, okay, you're going to get through this. You're not always going to be in a creative slump. Give it another two years. You'll be, <laughs> you'll be home free. Um, but it was, uh, I did come out of it, but it was, it was a tough one and I didn't have any pressure either. So, and what pressure approached me, I pushed away because I really couldn't deal with, I just wasn't feeling inspired at all, mm. but I would go into my studio. I made myself come into my studio and I would just push pain around. I would move things around. I would just like try, 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 try. And eventually something sparked. Mm -hmm. And so I kept showing you know, up. I kept showing up, not right away. Mm -hmm. You know, for a long time, I was like, oh, I can't deal with it. I just don't even want to go in there into the studio. But I did eventually, and I did kind of, I just told myself, go in there and be in there and stick it out and, you know, play with anything, just move stuff around. 
or organize your studio, like push, push collage materials around, whatever, look at pictures, mm-hmm. doesn't matter. Uh, and eventually I came out of it. And, you know, there are periods where I felt like I had the, like all these ideas would flood. And then ideas, uh, other years where I felt like, boy, it's really like I have to dr- pull these up from the depths, mm-hmm. you know, pull the ideas. Mm-hmm. So priming the pump, anything you can do to get those ideas going. Like, I feel like the more you work that muscle, you more, the more that you prime the pump, the more they come. And then the less you do that, the more it all dries up. And if you really dry up, then it's a cold start. It's hard getting going again. Mm -hmm. So I think it's best to keep some kind of flow. And if it's a difficult period of time, life circumstances then keep some kind of trickle something something Mm -hmm. a sketch pad uh photograph anything that inspires you write things down put files you know put things into a file uh just to keep 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 the inspiration coming so when you are ready to work again you have some place to go to sketch like anything that you can do it's a that's tough like that is a painful painful place to be. It is. Yeah. I I think it's really interesting and encouraging that you decided to reach out to a lot of other artists to see, you know, if they'd been through it and and what Mm -hmm. happened and, you know, how they worked through it and all that kind of, first of all, I think it's brilliant because it isn't easy for us, I think, sometimes to admit that we're in that in that place. For me, it isn't oftentimes because I feel like it's going to be viewed as, ah, she's, she's done, you know? But uh, I think it's great. And and I also think it's, I mean, it's kind of one of the things that I'm really interested in, like, you know, going through menopause and after menopause, you know, being over 50 again, you know, six over 50 for me, I'm over 60, I'm almost 64, you know, what it looks like to be an artist at this age, you know, what are the benefits and what are the more difficult things about that? And that's one of the things I wanted to ask you too, as, as you get older, I mean, do you think as an artist, as a multidimensional, not just artist, but social community activist, teacher, all the things. Do you think it's there's benefits and drawbacks to being an older woman mm-hmm. in, in the things that you're doing? Yes. So, I mean, one of the other difficult times, at least for me, was when my, my boys were really young. And, you know, infants, toddlers, uh, you know, right up to preschool, kindergarten, first grade, right? because it just took all of me, all my energy. All my, I would sometimes wake up before they even got up just to get an hour, a little tidbit of time to do something creative. So that was um, a wonderful time, but it was also a challenging time creatively for me as an artist. And now at 58, my sons are out in the world. My um, elders are healthy. <laughs> So I have no one to care give for. And I recognize that I am in, I have no grandchildren. I'm in this sweet spot (laughs) right? where I have time and it's mine and I can determine how I want to um, use it and on what, Mm -hmm. and that might not stay. I might need to want to devote time to my, you know, little ones or older ones in my life at some point, if that happens. So there's that. 
but there's also the benefit that comes from all the experience leading up to this point that I can draw from. Um, I think that I can make quicker decisions and I can determine more speedily what I should be pursuing. And when I start to slide down the detour slippery slope of something I shouldn't be getting myself into, I can quickly pull myself back up and go, no, 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 no. Don't go there. Yeah. (laughs) Knowing knowing yourself more or or confidence or combination. Yeah. Quicker um, retrieval, quicker recovery, Hmm. quicker, like return to the um, track, getting, getting, staying. I don't always stay on track. But when I get off track, I'm quicker to get back on. Let's mm-hmm. put it that way, that's right? Great. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. So uh, that's good. Yeah, that is that is really good. Yeah. And I also, you know, I ha- I'm healthy. I'm active. I feel strong. I, you know, I, my health, I have no health issues. So I feel very fortunate. Some of that is luck and some of it is like healthy living. But maybe when I'm... Oh, 80, I won't feel as, you know, well on my feet or alert or spry mm. or nimble as I do now. So I recognize that now is a really good time to do things that require like my that. body. Yeah. It's a, like you said, it's a sweet spot. Years ago, um, my sister said to me, she's 10 years older than I am. And she said, you're almost to the spot where um, your children are sort of off your apron strings and you don't have grandchildren yet. If there's anything really big in your life you want to do, this is the time. Like, this is it, you know? Yeah. I've always remembered. I, you know, that. I don't, yeah. I mean, I don't feel like I've deferred a lot either. Mm-hmm. I feel like I have, as soon as I've had opportunities, I feel like I jumped in there and seized it. So it's not like I've been had to wait, wait, wait. Um, yeah. I just recognize that I have, I have a lot of, I have a breath of opportunity right now. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I love spending time with my boys. I love spending time with my family. Right. So it's not like I don't want, I want everybody to go away and leave me alone <laughs> so I can just make art. I also recognize that balance is really important that uh, as much time as I crave in my studio at the end of the day, I around six o'clock, I'm like, I'm done. Yeah. Yeah. I want to, you know, do something else now. I, I want to go eat dinner with my husband. I let's right. go to a movie. Let's take a walk. So where other at other points I felt really like I craved more, more, more time in the studio. And now I can I get my fill and I recognize that okay, that's enough. Hmm. Now it's time to do something else. Yeah. And the balance for me feels like it really actually makes me a better artist because I get away from it. I can see it more the, you know, forest of the trees when I Mm -hmm. go to something else, go to a movie or go out for dinner or spend time with my daughters or, you know, those other things, you know, I, for me, if I was just doing art all the time, I think I would just get lost in it and it wouldn't be a positive thing when I can step back and then come back to it. Um, I'm much clearer and it's, it just, the next step flows much more easily for me. Um, So if you had one message or your strongest message that you would like to put out into the world, you know, through your art or through yourself that you would like to have, um, 
you know, really uh, stick with people. What would your strongest or biggest message be right now? Um, I'll, I might squeeze in two, Annette, but the first one is I had a tattoo on my wrist a year ago that says, you've only got one life to live and it's happening right now. Mm, I get the shivers and you just said that. Wow. So, you know, I really, I really think a lot about that. It's like, Mm -hmm. it's now like, you know, don't be afraid, do it, do something scary, do something that, you know, you, you know, try, try, maybe it won't work out. Right. But at least you'll have tried at least no regrets. Mm -hmm. Um, At least you're doing your part by stepping forward and making an effort and also not squandering our precious time on those things that shouldn't matter so much, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Letting that go. So that's really, that's definitely something that I, I would, I think a lot about. It's beautiful. But the other one that I'll squeeze in there is do less, better. Do less, better. Taking on less, but doing a better job with those things that you do take on, like give it your all, give it your best, give it everything. Mm. Um, Rather than scattering energy everywhere and dabbling to figure out those things that are most important where you're, you want your time and energy and passion to go and put all of it into those places. I'm not saying it has to be one thing, but that's great. Bring it all, bring it all together and put it into fewer things and do a better job. Yeah, that's great. I need to hear that one. That I think that you just spoke really to me for that one. And I'm because, um, you know, I think that oftentimes I get to the point where I'm, I don't know, looking at my age, you know, whatever it might be and say, oh my gosh, there's so many things that I want to still do. And instead of really being able to hone in on the thing, maybe that I'm most passionate about and giving it a hundred percent, I do to like kind of scatter seeds in all different places. And I think part of it is like, I don't know, the fear of missing out on an opportunity to do lots of things. And, uh, so yeah, I, I need to do more thinking around that because I completely agree with you. I just don't feel as though I'm always the best at being able to do that because I've got so many things that I'm interested in. Right. But that's, I mean, the, the first step of that is figuring out what are, what is the less, like what, what does that, if, when you take away the extra, the superfluous, whatever endeavors, mm-hmm. what, what should be left? Like, what are those that remain that are, that are really worth your life? Mm, your life. That's, that's work, right? That's work it is. right there. That is such Figuring work. that out. Yeah. But once that's figured out, then it becomes like a t- an acid test. Does this feed into that important set of things? Mm-hmm. Or do we jettison that? Yeah. Does this belong or does this go? It's yeah. easy, like thumbs up, thumbs down. Does right. it fit? Does it not? So <laughs> yeah, I think the work to that is figuring out like what's really important here. Yeah. You're a great combination of artist, but um, logic and 
straightforwardness or I, mm-hmm. I don't know that you you're a really interesting combination of all of those kinds of things which I think probably is what makes you such you know a great artist teacher um all of all of those things to be able to be so multi-dimensional um mm-hmm. and yeah I'm really grateful to have gotten to know you and, and gotten to know yeah, you, you too the you class too. I did I find that I have to um, temper a little bit when I teach because I can be pretty hardcore with myself, but I, I know that not everyone is like, you know, like driving towards whatever, whatever their aspirations are in the same way. So I, I have to go, I have to proceed with some caution there and Mm. not assume that we all we don't all have the same aspirations, right? Are what you, you want and what I want. I'm a Gemini. Gemini. <laughs> okay. What I want and what you want are different things. So I can't assume that you want my my list, right? right. <laughs> so right. I have to I have to listen and I have to pay attention to like when I teach. What do you want? Like what is what what's the student going? I have to pay attention to that and not presume. Yeah, I, I agree. Yeah, it's easy for us to know what our maybe what our goals are, or, you know, how our brains think. Um, and then put that on someone else when we're trying to teach them something or, um, and then not really be able to listen to exactly where, where they want to go. And I find right. that actually with my partner a lot, because he is 180 degrees from me and thinks very, mm-hmm. very differently. We talk about that all the time. And so I can't, I can't come to him with the same assumption that he's going to think about it or have the same goals for a particular thing as I do uh, mm-hmm. or the same time frame, or yeah, it's a, it's, and it's a great way I think for us to be able to put ourselves in someone else's shoes and I don't know, gain more empathy and understanding yeah. I guess, for the other people. Yeah. Uh, so Kim, where can people find you um, online? Um, KimBernard.com, my website has all the info and for social media I'm on Facebook and I'm on Instagram so uh, you can reach you can connect to those through my website also so I'd say that my website is the best way to reach me and if anyone wanted to email info at kimbernard.com but my work is on my website the workshops that I teach um, my trash to art programming with youth is also on there and uh yeah it's all there Mm. my website oh great that's great and um so right now you have the art installation in what town is it again in massachusetts lowell mass in lowell mass right right now for exhibits i have one uh piece at the farnsworth museum in rockland maine art museum i have hmm well uh, I have some permanent pieces at the University of New England and the Washington County Community College. And I have a solo show coming up at the Nesto Gallery, which is part of Milton Academy in Milton, Mass. And that will be up in March. Wonderful. Also, I think that's it. <laughs> you get a lot. You get a lot going on. If I forgot something, it's on the website. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I think, I mean, I hope people go to your website because, I mean, we there's so many of the things that we have not even like scratched the surface. You know, your um the the race that you do in is it Camden? Oh, 
Yeah, it's the Rockland Sculpture Race. Yeah. So yeah. that comes around in June of every year. Um, crazy scu sculptural contraptions that get pushed, pulled, and pedaled around the block. I organize this crazy race in, in Rockland every year. Anyone that's interested is welcome to sign up for my monthly newsletter. Oh, okay. Also, you can do that um, by just contacting me through uh, my website, info at kimbernard.com. And I'll just, you know, send out some info about what's up. Oh, that's excellent. Yeah. Well, everyone should yeah. do that because you've got some really interesting things that you've done that you're doing that are coming. And um, I love watching what, what's happening with you. And I hope to take another class with you again, because I love the other one, even just for the community, like the group of people that yes. were in the class were so wonderful. And I learned so much. And so yeah. thank you. Thank you so much today for spending this time with me. And thanks um, for having me, Nanette. And I appreciate you, the invitation. It's been fun for me too. It has been fun. And uh, let's, let's stay in touch. And uh, All right. thanks again, Kim. Take care. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Fire After 50 podcast. Please check the show notes for links and resources to everything we mentioned in this episode. And if you'd like to be a guest on my podcast, please visit my website at nanettefaygordon.com. And surprise, surprise, I specialize in photographing women over 50. If you'd like more information, you can log on to my website. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening.